0: So I asked my husband the other day what experiences he's had that he finds truly satisfying. And his response was, uh, eating Cheetos. And I said, no, no, no. like what, you know, like satisfying, like, you know, you get that popcorn kernel unstuck from a tooth after hours and hours of trying, or or you pull off a barcode sticker and it comes out all in one piece, like that kind of satisfying. And he's like, yeah, eating Cheetos. (laughs) I asked some of my friends the same question, here are some of their answers. Placing the last piece in a large puzzle. Clearing the last message out of your inbox. I don't know what that feels like. Uh, finding an open parking spot right in front of Trader Joe's. Doing all the claps perfectly in sync with the Friends theme song. Peeling off a large piece of skin after a sunburn. Yeah. Ugh, but it's really satisfying, though, it just ugh, it comes off. Buzzing someone when playing a game of Taboo. Making somebody laugh, pumping gas, and getting it to stop on the exact flat dollar amount. That's really exciting. My husband, <laughs> someone is into that one. Yes. My husband recently got me a gift that really improved my quality of life. Um, we had, a few weeks ago, we had this infestation of flies uh, where, you know, some trash, a little bit, banana peel or something, fell behind the trash bin. We didn't see it. So a few days later, I come home, and there is just this explosion of house flies, and they're just, they're thick, like orcs pouring into helms deep. And, and, and I'm, I'm like, oh, this is disgusting. So I asked Rob, can you get, can you get us a fly swatter? He's like, yeah, sure. Next day, an, a package arrives from Amazon. And I open the package and what I see inside is what appears to be a small pink tennis racket with, with a button on the side of it. And when you push this button, it electrifies the tennis racket. So, so not only do you swat the flies, but you, you zap them in the process. Right? And I wasn't totally into this before until, until I, I swatted my first fly with it. And it, it, not only do you get the satisfaction of destroying you know, these invaders that have taken over your house, but, but when you swat them, there's this pop and a spark and they fall dead where they flew. I mean, it is just so satisfying. I, it, I, I was looking for more flies. I was really sad when we ran out of flies because I couldn't zap them anymore. It was, it was so satisfying, right? What, what satisfies you? What experiences have you had that you find really satisfying? And you know, my hope is that it's not as absurd or meaningless as, a, as an electric fly swatter. But, but my conversations with people, my friends, my family, congregants over these last few weeks, remind me that maybe it is. And that the faint, unappetizing smell of burnt housefly might be as good as the holidays get for some of us. This morning we're gonna be looking at the prologue of the Gospel of John as Mary Ellen read for us. And, and John is writing to the early church, we're looking at somewhere maybe between 60 and 80 AD, so maybe 50 years after Jesus died. And he's writing very likely to a church that, that continues to face immense persecution from the Pharisees and the Jewish teachers of the law, the, the opposition that Jesus himself faced, which was so intense that it resulted, what, in his crucifixion, right? They're still facing that. It's still continuing 30, 40, 50 years after his resurrection. So, so uh, you know, Easter wasn't a Jewish holiday. They denied the resurrection. They continued to try to suppress the followers of Christ among them. There is, I think, this gap, right? There is this miserable gap for all of us between the time when a prayer is prayed and when it's fulfilled. And this is, this is the prayer for healing, the prayer for a child, for a job, for a relationship. We, we pray these prayers, and they go up to heaven, but then there is a gap. Because we see only through a glass dimly, and we don't know what's happening on heaven's side of that prayer. And this isn't unique to us. This is, this is the decades-long prayer of Sarai, whose, whose womb didn't open until she was an old woman. This is the prayer of Simeon, who, who waited his entire life just to see this baby who would be the Lord's salvation. These are the prayers of the Psalms that say, how long, O Lord, how long will you hide your face from me? There's there's always a gap. And John writes to the people in the gap. Advent is our celebration of the arrival of Jesus. That's what the word advent means. It just means arrival. And Jesus had arrived. And the people were anticipating his imminent second arrival, but he's not back yet. And things aren't turning out at, at all as they had hoped for. And the wait has left them feeling deeply dissatisfied. And maybe they're beginning to question, you know, did did this thing that they heard and saw and felt and experienced in worship, was it actually real, and is it still worth following? They're in the gap. They're in the gap, waiting for God to arrive again. John actually gives us his mission statement at the conclusion of his letter. He says but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And, and the word in the tense that he, he uses there for believe, many scholars agree, could be best read, that you may go on believing. And the word that he uses for life, zoe, it, th- this doesn't just mean existing, this means full, deep, abundant, satisfying life. So, so John writes, that you may go on believing that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by that believing you may have a full, abundant, deep life in his name. So John writes to his audience and to us with the intention of convincing us that living in the gap doesn't have to mean a lifeless, fretful, miserable existence. Even though we're waiting, even though we're in the gap, we can still experience life. Where are you living in the gap? Where is the gap for you? Where are you living in the space between when the prayer was prayed and when it will be fulfilled? Can you think of it? John has at least three things to say to us there. First in verse 4, in him was life. Again, that word zoe, not just existence, but life, full life. In him was life. I like Dale Bruner's translation here. When what has been made was in union with him, there was life. When what has been made was in union with him, there was full, abundant, satisfying life. If you've ever experienced the unfortunate accident of putting diesel into a a gasoline engine, you know that you're not going to get very far, right? You know that diesel is thicker. It plugs up the fuel injectors. The car might start, and it might run sluggishly for a little bit, but eventually it's going to die. If you've ever done Whole30, which is basically where you just eat protein and vegetables for a month, and, and then to celebrate your success, your husband eats a, a buffalo chicken grilled cheese sandwich from Toasted, and then pays for it uh, dearly through a series of gastrointestinal mutinies the next day. You know this is all hypothetical. You understand? It, it, you understand if you've done these things that, that that bodies and engines were designed to run on a certain type of fuel. When the fuel's right, the engine runs well. When the fuel is wrong, the engine runs poorly. And we learn from verse three that that, that we are creatures. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. That's us. We were made. You and I were made. Without him, nothing has been made. We're creatures, and we are beautiful, complex creatures who bear the glorious image of God, to be sure, but we are creatures all the same. And we were designed. As an engineer designs a vehicle, you know, he he, he, he makes it just so. He molds it so that it can, it's capable of high speeds. It can move in reverse, But 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 the car can only run on the fuel for which it was designed. I think part of the reason that we don't experience full, abundant, satisfying lives is that we try, we try to get away from the gap. We try to anesthetize ourselves from the experience of waiting. and We fill the gap. We fill it with, with things that distract us or numb the discomfort. We fill up on these things, entertainment, sex, shopping, a, a constant compulsive pursuit of amusement, we fill ourselves up with these things and we experience diminishing returns and we don't know the reason why. Well, the reason why is that we weren't made to run on distractions, the wrong type of fuel for how we were designed. We were made to run on relationship with Jesus Christ. When what was made was in union with him, there was life. In Philippians, Paul writes uh, from prison, he writes from prison these words, I know what it is to be in need and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. And I can do all this through him who gives me strength." You understand that the satisfaction, the zoe, is, is dependent upon the relationship the union with Jesus. When what was made was in union with him, there is life. And I think we have this tendency, We, we you know, we get mad at God, or, or, or maybe we, we we find ourselves unnecessarily disappointed because we don't realize that this is a dependent clause. When what was made was in union with him, there was life. We we all wanna know where the Zoe is, but, but, but we haven't experienced the union. The, the union comes first, has to come first. And the union, the relationship, it actually changes us. It changes our feelings, our desires, our expectations. Listen, we, we have a real problem, and I'm not picking on you, I'm, I'm picking on me, I'm picking on us together because it's not just an individual problem, this is, this is a, a corporate problem, a social, a societal problem. So, so many of the prayers of lament in the Bible, um, regret and grieving, so many of the lament prayers are prayed by people who didn't actually commit the sins. These are, you know, Daniel and his friends, these are the children of the children of the Israelites who broke covenant with God. Corporate lament. We are such an individualistic society. We don't have a category for this. Corporate lament. No, I didn't do it myself, but I lament that we've done it together, that we've done it as a people. We've all gotten here together. Please, God, help us to get away from this place, this sin, this attitude, this, this value system that we've adopted and not questions that has got us all here. And so the problem that I think we all have that we've succumbed to corporately is that we have no room in our lives for patience. Scripture calls this long-suffering. We have no room in our lives for normal human sadness and discomfort. We, we live in a moment in history when every good thing has become a potentially addictive substance. Right? It's not just drugs and alcohol anymore. It's TV. It's porn. It's food that hypothetical day that Rob and I finished Whole30 the first time. The next day, I, I flew to Ohio for a family vacation with some of my extended family. And one of the highlights in Geneva-on-the-Lake, Ohio, which is a little podunk town, is, is this place called Madsen Donuts, right? And, and every morning, we rotate the family member who goes to Madsen Donuts, wakes up early, gets a couple dozen of these for the nine or so of us who are there. And, and, and I know after you finish Whole30, you're supposed to, like, slowly reintroduce the food groups one at a time. Like, day one is grains, and day two is legumes, and day three is dairy, or whatever, and your will to live. And, but, but, but nobody does that, right? You didn't do that. Nobody does that. So the, after 30 days of agony, you go to Publix, you buy yourself a well-deserved chicken tenders dinner, which in truth are sprinkled with the dust of a thousand fairies. So, so I admit, I ate the donut. I ate the donut, and I didn't just eat the boring cake donut, I ate the chocolate-frosted cream-filled long john. And then I ate the cake donut, because nobody really likes those anyway, so it was like a public service snacking. And I, I think, I think if I had stopped at one, that the Lord would have let me keep both my donuts. But alas, I lost them both to some bushes in our, in our walk to the beach. And you'd think, you'd think that that would have taught me my lesson, but I would be lying to you if I didn't say that once I puked up my donuts, I didn't think to myself, gosh, I really feel like I could have another. Really? What is that? I mean, what is that? Every good thing. Every good thing has been turned into a potentially addictive substance. Food, television, right? I remember when we used to have to wait week to week to find out what happened on the next episode of Lost. Just tell me what's in the hatch, John Locke, right? And, and, and now we don't have to wait. I could have lost my job the first time that I watched Battlestar Galactica because how do you fit in work and sleep around eight, eight episode days, you know? I mean, really, we, we've taken away, wait, listen, listen to this, go with me here. We've taken away, just think about the lives lives that we live, we've taken away every opportunity for people to practice patience and moderation, self-restraint, but then we throw them into relationships where they still need those things. Friendships, marriages, faith, coworkers, kids. No wonder we can't stand living in the gap. We have been trained to believe that the gap should not exist. And if God didn't show up the way that I want him to, how I want him to, well, then I guess he can't or I guess he won't, which means he must not love me very much. Oh. We are in it, guys. We're in it deep. We have to lament. We have to lament this lie that everything must be immediate or, or we've been harmed, that everything must be Easy or we've been wronged. We have to lament it. We have to lament that we've accepted it, that we've not questioned it, that we've that now we expect it. And as a result, it is ruining us because now we base our our idea of God and his ability and his love on an archetype of a parent who won't say no to a child asking for a third cookie. Yes, it tastes good, but 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 it's not gonna nourish you. Yes, it tastes good, but but it's not gonna keep you filled. Yes, it tastes good, but it's gonna make you sick. Listen, we all, all of us, every single one of us here, has to at some point decide what we are going to use as our absolute truth. What's gonna be our center? What, what is the light by which we will judge right and wrong, good and bad, and if it's not God's word, what is it? What is it for you? Are we basing our ideas about God, ourselves, and other people on on our thoughts and feelings? And if so, how's that working out for you? How's it working out for you? Because it never worked out very well for me. When what has been made was in union with him, there was life. Full, abundant, satisfying life. You understand that a, a satisfying, full, joyful life isn't at the mercy of our circumstances. It's at the mercy of our heart. Is your heart in union with Jesus, the one who brings light and life, or is it in union with this world and the substitutes it offers? And and I know you just want to be happy. I just want to be happy. We all just want to be happy. But if we just want to be happy, and nothing more than that, then we will have plans but not purpose. We will be pacified but not satisfied, and we will never rest. We will simply numb out our exhaustion with entertainment. Are we settling for Cheetos? Because we can't stand the gap. We all want to experience life, Zoe, full, abundant, satisfying life, but Zoe is found in the gap. God God is a good God, and he wants to give us good gifts, but, but what we think is a good gift and what he thinks is a good gift may, on certain days, not align. They're not always the same thing, at least not until you get to know him a little better. Maybe the good gift he wants to give you is patience, which is the ability to soothe yourself in the midst of uncertainty. Maybe the good gift he wants to give you is gratitude, the ability to weather painful circumstances and loss without it breaking you. Maybe the good gift he wants to give you is forgiveness, to see your own failures and and shortcomings and and sins for the deadly price they exact, but to recognize that you're not going to have to pay that price. Maybe the gift he wants to give you is acceptance, the, the ability to enjoy the present without obsessing over the past. Maybe the good gift he wants to give you is hope, a belief that that maybe uh, all of the future is not just bad things, but there are good things yet to come. When what had been made was in union with him, there was life. The union comes first, and it's not a vending machine. Again, he may not give you what you originally asked for, but the union, the relationship, it changes us. It changes our feelings and our expectations, and it can restore to the original goodness our once good desires that have become so painfully bent in our sin. In him was life. And, of course, that means outside of him is death. And, and we don't see this as life and death. Of course we don't, because, because you know, if, if you're living your life in union with something other than Jesus, something, you know your, your job, your money, uh, your relationships, if you're living your life in union with that, no, it, it will not immediately kill you. But, but guys, the measure of life and death is more than a beating heart. Yes, you can exist without him, but you can't really live. You can't really live. Second thing John wants us to know, verse 4, in him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. We were made to live in union with Jesus, and when we live in union with him, when we do this, this verse tells us the lights come on. And this isn't always a pleasant experience. One time I turned on the lights in our garage, and there was a giant, big, black snake, and so... I just slowly turned those lights back off because you know what? There's nothing I need in the garage that badly. I can just go to Publix and buy new toilet paper and I'll just, I'll hold it, I'll hold it till then. <laughs> Gary mentioned last week that, that, you know, light can be disruptive, you know, you're laying in a dark room, someone comes in, they turn on the lights and it's disruptive, it hurts your eyes for a second, but, but after that you can see what the room actually looks like. When we're living outside of union with Jesus, there is an absence of light. We cannot see what the room actually looks like. We can't see our own condition. And you know, we, we all agree that we need help, right? We, we all know we need help, but we can look at the, the self-help books, the, the sheer volume of them. We can look at the infomercials. We all know we need help, but until the lights come on, we don't actually know what kind of help we really need. Are you walking toward a cliff? Lights come on, oh, I gotta stop moving. Or are you walking away from a lion? Lights come on. Oh, I got I to start moving <laughs> really, really fast. We can't tell the difference in the dark. In the dark, we can't see danger. A, a knife in the light is a tool. In the dark, it's a hazard. In, in, in the dark, we, we grope around for something that will bring us comfort. And we can't see that the warm, soft thing we're embracing is actually a hungry bear. We are all desperate for something that brings us life, but in the absence of light, almost anything will do, even things that will consume us. In the dark, we can't see where we're going, and, and we pour, the whole world pours endless amounts of time and talent and energy and resources into trying to figure out where we're going, where we came from, where we should be headed, philosophy, science, religion, they all attempt to answer these questions. Stephen Hawking said, the eventual goal of science is to provide a single theory that describes the whole universe. Trouble is that the universe gets real squirrely when you try to pin it down. Right? Einstein uh, proved that, that, that light itself behaves sometimes like a wave and other times like a particle. And, and, and particles and waves should behave differently for example, uh, sound is a wave, right? I say words and they ripple out and all, you all hear these words that I'm saying because sound is a wave. If sound behaved like a particle, I could say all these words and the only person who would hear it would be Gary, right? And, 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 it, and it would make it impossible for you to like call your dog from the back porch every night because no matter how loud and how much you yell, Ramses, get in here, the only person who can hear it is one very irritated neighbor. So so we've we've discovered discovered that other things can actually also behave with the dual nature of particle and light. Electrons, one of the building blocks of our atoms can behave both as a wave and a particle. And in fact, with with all of our technology, with all of our science, we still can't predict exactly where an electron will be in its orbit, especially as that orbit gets further and further away from the nucleus. So there's a small but non-zero chance, non-zero chance, that an atom in this room, has an electron that's floating somewhere on the opposite side of the known universe at any given moment. So yes, we know a ton about this world, but there is still a ton in the dark. There's still so much in the dark. What we know, what we know now with our science is is like little sections of a big puzzle, right, when you first start to put it together. And yes, we can get some of them to fit together, but we don't know yet what the picture on the box is supposed to look like science and technology, they don't invalidate the supremacy of God any more than green doesn't cease to be a color simply because we've discovered that it's made of yellow and blue. That's not what green is. That, that's only what it's made of. And the more that we learn about the universe, there's this danger, I think, of, of mistaking knowledge for meaning. We say there must not be a God because we've discovered natural law and there must not be a God because we've discovered the cause and effect. Like, like we want to fire the coach because he's agreed to play by the rules that he himself created. Yes, there are muons and bluons and quarks and sometimes we can measure them, but science still doesn't know why there is something instead of nothing in this world. Maybe the universe is so hard to pin down because God doesn't want us to mistake the what for the why. It is in union with Christ that the lights come on and we finally get a glimpse of that picture on the box, if the eventual goal of science is to provide a single theory that describes the whole world, then in the Christian faith, that theory is the person of Jesus Christ. For in him, we live and move and have our being, Acts 17.8. Are we in union? Are we in union with, with the Jesus that holds all things together? Have you met him? He's met you. You're not godless. I can tell by looking at you. You're not godless because he's holding your atoms together. There's no such thing as a godless person because he is too very near each one of us for that to be a possibility. Third thing John wants us to know as we wait in the gap. Verse 5, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. I think it's helpful to note that shines is, is the first present tense verb that we see in the prologue. I like Brunner's translation again. This light shines on in the darkness even still, and the darkness did not put it out. So third thing John wants us to know, the gap is closing. It's closing fast, and in fact, it has already begun in the present. Hope is a really powerful motivator. I recently ran my first race in just under four hours. It was a 5K. It was a 5K. G- no, I ran it in 35 minutes, which is super slow, uh, but, but that's a big accomplishment for me personally. Uh, primarily because I have rheumatoid arthritis, secondarily because I hate running, uh, slightly less than I hate porcelain dolls. And I didn't tell anyone I was running, right? Because I don't like to fail publicly. And I knew that with my arthritis, there'd be a possibility I'd have a flare, I'd have to quit. I think one of the hardest things. About establishing a, a regular exercise routine, not just for me but for just everyone I've ever met, is that the first couple of months are so miserable that it's easy to quit. But if you just, you know, if you if you just go for a couple of months and then you quit and then you start again for a couple of months and then you quit, like even if your cumulative months of exercise add up to years of your life, you've only experienced the worst of what it's felt like to exercise it. You've never had a workout that made you feel better. And so with my arthritis, I feel kind of doomed to this cycle. You know, I, I, I make some progress, and then I have a flare. I have to stop. I make some progress, I have a flare, I have to stop. And then I have to fight through those first miserable few weeks over and over again. And as a result, I'm not very motivated. I don't always want to do things. And it just feels really hopeless. So about six months ago, I'm having a conversation with my husband. And something I say betrays this idea that I don't really have a lot of hope for myself physically. Uh, not, I mean, not that I would ever be like a pro CrossFitter, uh, even if I didn't have arthritis. Because, come on, um, who who does that? <laughs> but, but, but I didn't have hope that my physical condition could even be improved at all because of my diagnosis. And, and this pushed some kind of button in my husband, because he got he got mad and he started arguing with me about how I should have hope. And this is very out of character for him, because he has he has nothing. But gentle and kind and generous with me in conversations, especially conversations as regard to my illness, uh, with regard to my illness. And so, um, so it caught me off guard. He got mad. He was like, You get up there every week and you, you pre- you tell people that they need to have hope, and you're not, you're not gonna have any hope for yourself. That's not okay. And I was I was so mad at him, I knew he was right. But I was so mad at him because he was just so wrong about the way he was being right that I didn't want to reward him by like telling him he had a point. So I didn't. But it was the <laughs> But it was the very next morning that I started doing the couch to, to 5K trainer, and it was like a little running trainer. And I still didn't tell him. He, in fact, I never told ta- He caught me on week six. Um, I'd, I'd go real early in the morning so you know no one would know, and, and what, Ember woke him up early one morning and I was coming in. I was all sweaty and had my earbuds in, and he's like, what, what, are you, what are you doing? And I felt, I was busted. I felt like Forrest Gump. I just felt like running, you know? And, and, and he's like, so, so you run now? And I was like, well, just three times a week for the last six weeks. He's like, OK. But he was right. You know, I, did, I didn't want to live hopelessly. I didn't want to just wither away on the couch, slowly losing my mobility. Even if it meant that I had to fight through these miserable weeks over and over again, that's still a better existence than to stop moving and just wait, just wait for a different kind of misery to make its way to me. And you know, I still hate running, but, but man, did it give me hope. Man, did it give me hope to run that race. Maybe I will lose mobility in the future, but I can still put one foot in front of the other today, and that is worth celebrating in the present. Hope is, is motivating. One of the greatest gifts that John's gospel gives us is hope in the present. Darkness did not put it out. That's a a reference, no doubt, to the crucifixion, this this historical event that happened, and, and it tried to extinguish the light forever, but the light shines on even still in the darkness, present tense. There is nothing that can extinguish the light and life available to us in Jesus. The crucifixion failed. Killing Jesus failed, and there's nothing more hopeless than dead, right? So, so, so why should I care? Why should I surrender this relationship, this addiction, this attitude I'm clinging to for comfort? What's, what's out there that's better than this? What's out there is life. Zoe, full, abundant, satisfying life. Something more than just existing, than getting up, going to work, coming home, eating dinner, watching TV, going to bed. Getting up, going to work, coming home, eating dinner, watching TV, going to bed. That's not all there is. There is more for you than that computer late at night. There is more for you than just binge watching other people's adventures. There is more for you than being in that room that you're not supposed to be in with, that guy you're not supposed to be with. Don't let the devil give you Cheetos and call it love. There is more for you. He wants us to believe that's all there is. He wants to turn off the lights so we can't see the truth, so we'll settle for whatever comfort we can find in the darkness. Do not let the devil smother your light. Don't let him slowly smother your light by convincing you that there's no good thing today, that that all hope is deferred. It's a lie. It's a lie that's meant to put out your light, not with a bang, but with a whimper, one small disappointment at a time, to get you stuck worrying about the future, not anticipating it, about how much worse it's gonna get. Don't you dare let him. Don't you dare let the devil leverage the pain that he has caused you to keep you away from the God who can make you whole. Don't let him. Not all hope is deferred. Remember, you can still put one foot in front of the other today. Advent is a time where we remember the wait. When the whole world, the cosmos, waited in anticipation for the best thing to arrive. And I'm sorry guys, but we're stuck here. We're stuck here until he arrives again. So, so how can life be found here? What what is it that he offers us? What can we receive while we wait for him to arrive again? And are we settling for Cheetos instead? Instead of fighting the gap, instead of fighting it, let's consider what can we receive from him here and nowhere else? What's available today? Have we asked for patience? Have we asked for patience? What a gift that would be in an uncertain world that waits for his arrival. Have we asked for gratitude so pain and loss don't break us while we wait for his arrival? Have you asked for forgiveness so you don't have to fear his arrival? Have you asked for acceptance so you can experience joy in the present until his arrival? Have you asked for hope so you can be confident that the best things are yet to arrive? Let's pray. Jesus, we adore you. We're grateful. We we recognize that you came to us when we didn't deserve it and that there is no thing dark enough in us that you can't light it up. Thank you, God, for being a good God. Thank you for offering us good gifts. Thank you for, for not allowing us to comfort ourselves to death. And Lord, we confess that we that we miss the life that you've designed us for often because it's easier or we're just used to the things that we want. We're afraid of having hope because we are afraid that that hope will lead to disappointment. Lord, forgive us for not risking enough on you. You risked everything on us. Thank you, Lord, that, that you refuse to leave us here, that you, that you don't, don't want to punish us. For our fear and our sin and our hopelessness, you want to light it up. So Lord, we ask that you would give us the wisdom and the courage to examine our substitutions, to see the things that we have called life that are not, to see the places that we've accepted the Lord, the, the world's substitutions, and that we would be able to release those, Lord to you, that we could surrender them and lay them at your feet. Give us the courage to hope again because the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not put it out and it never will. We pray all this in the name of your son Jesus Christ in whom we put our hope. Amen.